As we begin this morning, I'd like to add my words of welcome that have already been spoken. For those of us that haven't met, my name is Joe Scruggs, and I'm on the staff here, an associate pastor that helped with the pastoral care. It's a real privilege to, to be here this morning, and we're going to continue in our series this morning about parables. But before we do that, I wanted to introduce someone. This is Margot Ferringer. And Margot and I, through a series of odd circumstances that are way too convoluted to go into now, we have become blood buddies. And I'm not even going to tell you what that means, but it's not anything bad or anything like that. It's we share a medical problem and, and we talk about our counts and things like that. So you might wonder, these are poor, lonely people that don't have anything to talk about but blood counts. And so socially, Margot has skills. Socially, I, I, I don't. Uh, I used to tell people with Margie, Margie made who's who, and I, I made who's that. So, uh, but it's a real special thing. So one of the special things about the Redeemer, I think, is the, uh, the, the kids that go here. Now, Margot's not a kid, but we'll call it young people. And they have meant a lot to me, and like I say, Margot and I have shared some medical problems. And so I've, we've gotten to know each other lately, and I just thought it would be really nice to have her read the parable this morning. We're going to read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, and in the Red Bible, it's on page 1529. So we'll give you just a second to get it, and Margot's going to read it for us. Okay, verse 1. Y'all, I'm nervous, so... <laughs> okay, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into, the, into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing around, standing here all day, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the, of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them have also, have also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those, or I'm sorry, these men who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be the first, and the first will be the last. Thank you, Margo. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, before we start on this, uh, the, this is a kind of a tricky parable, I think, and uh, I have a reason for asking to do it, which I'll tell you about at the end of the sermon. And by the way, I just now noticed there's a clock up there that counts down. Uh, so good luck when it reaches zero, because I'm still going to be going. Uh, 
I don't watch that clock. No, just, just kidding. Uh, before we look at the parable, though, there's, before we look at what it says, I think it's really important to make sure we know that there's something that it does not say. Under no circumstances, under no way, under no how, does the Bible anywhere, anywhere advocate or even hint at that it's okay to exploit workers. That's not what this is about. In fact, the Bible goes the other way. You can just read multiple places where it talks about the importance of treating people, all people, with respect. And if you want a good handle on what it thinks about exploiting people, just read the book of Amos in the Old Testament. But I want to be very, very, very clear. There is not a scintilla of that in this parable. So the question is, it's a complicated parable. In fact, Bill and I were looking at a book the other day talking about it. And it's one of the three most complicated, this author said it's one of the three most complex and complicated parables. So the question that immediately followed that is what am I doing talking about this particular parable? Because um, I'm in the theological junior varsity. But anyway, uh, it's complicated. And it seems like the traditional view of the parable, if we could sum it up, it goes something like this. Jesus is making the point that the kingdom of heaven is really big enough for anybody. It's available to those who have faithfully served God for a long time. And this is the kicker. But it's also faithful for people who commit to Christ in the waning hours of their time on earth. That's quite a span. Let me give you an example. Many of us in here knew Frank Boucher. How many of us knew Frank as we raise our hand? Frank, if you didn't know him, was one of the saints of the church, one of the anchors of the church. He and his wife Mary, an incredible contribution to the faith. And not just in a short term, but years and years and years and decades of service. And scores of people, when we had his service, scores of people raised their hand that Frank had had a positive impact on them for the kingdom. So here you have Frank Boucher. And Frank's over here. Now what I want you to do is imagine someone who's over there. In the other, on the other side, you have a confessed criminal who actually acknowledged that he had committed crimes that were worthy of a horrible, horrible, brutal death that he was facing. He acknowledged that. He had killed people. He had stolen from people. He was a bona fide troublemaker in every sense of the word. This guy was about as far spiritually from Frank as you can get. Frank here, 180 degrees over here is this guy. We don't even know his name. And literally, what were the last moments of a life lived very, very, very badly. He cried out to Jesus and said, Today, he cried out to Jesus, and Jesus responded by saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. And I believe the guy was sincere, but goodness gracious, I mean, a life lived like that with about 30 or with about a couple of hours to go to make that kind of thing and for Jesus to say that, that is almost outlandish. That can almost be interpreted as being offensive. What about Frank? What about the Frank vouchers of the world? But you know something? That's just the kind of the way it works. This guy and Frank are sharing the same glorious existence today. Incomprehensible. And that's kind of what the parable says. But what are some of the understories? What are some of the foundational stories that it's about? I can't explain the mind of God, but I do think there's some things in here that are very, very important for us to grasp. And some of them are so familiar that we might overlook them. We might just think past them. But there's some great truths in here. There's some hard truths in one sense of the word. 
And I have heard people say that it's, uh, it's almost offensive, some of the things that are in here, because it violates so many premises that we live under, that we live about, under the umbrella. The first underlying thing is in the opening sentence. It's very important, because it tells us the nature of the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Okay, this is not about our world. This is not about our kingdom. This is not about the world that we live in. This is about the kingdom of heaven. This is about the kingdom of God. It's a different environment. It's something very different. And it was a big part of what Jesus preached. In the Gospel of Mark, the first thing he said, the first words that we have recorded were, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is big, the fact that it's about the kingdom. Now I'm making an assumption, and the assumption is that all of us in here would like to go to heaven. All of us would like that. So this is important for us to know what this kingdom is like and what are some of the things that are a part of it. And so I'm making that assumption, and with that in mind, really that's the assumption, and realizing that we don't think about this as much as we probably should, the kingdom of God calls us to a massively, massively, massively different way to live than the kingdom that we live in. It's a different set of values, it's a different set of perspectives, it's a different set of responses. It is just different. Here's how a guy named John Stott described it. These two value systems, this world and God's will, are incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. Whether we're thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, they're incompatible. Whether we're thinking about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, they're incompatible. About ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, they're incompatible. About religion or anything else, the two sets of standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. No possibility of compromise. It is a completely and totally different system. It's a completely and totally different kingdom. And what we try to do if we're not very, very careful, we try to straddle the kingdoms. We know there's things that we need to do differently. We know there's things that we need to be about that we're not about. But we're scared to give this up because we don't know how it's going to work. The minister I had in college made a really interesting statement once, and he was really challenging us. He said, you folks are in a real mess. He said, you're too sinful to be good Christians, but you're too Christian to be good sinners. And so we're just trying to saddle this thing, and it just doesn't work. It's very, very complicated. But point one, this is a different kingdom. This is a different way of life. There are different rules. There are different values. It's different. And the second concept that is underlying this parable is what I would call the sovereignty of God. The landowner is God. And look at verse 1 again. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Not their vineyard, his vineyard. And his response to the workers' complaint. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you. Remember the people complained about the, the fairness of the system. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Here's the sentence. Do, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? He's basically stating that he is sovereign. 
He's the king. He's in charge. And that's the way God is. God is sovereign. And that's tough for us. He points out that he has the right to do what he wants with his own money, with his own land, with his own stuff. He had the right to pay whatever he wanted, and if he chooses to be generous, so be it. That's his right because he's sovereign. God is the landowner. He's sovereign. And that's hard for some of us in some ways. That's a difficult thing to get our minds around because we like to think of we're the captain of our ships. We're the masters of our fate. We're the center. It's about us. Uh, you know, there was an, a philosopher, and I don't know anything about it, but I know one thing he said. His name was Descartes. He said, the secret to life was I think, therefore I am. In other words, this is built around me. The Christian position, the new kingdom position, is God wills, therefore I am. It's a completely, completely different perspective. I'll give you an example. Some of you know I help in a, a retirement center down on 121st Street called Covenant Place. And it's been really a good experience for me to watch the, the struggles that people go through as they get older. And they're real struggles, and these are good people. One of the toughest things that they have to deal with, and rightfully so, but a lot of them have had their car taken away from them. And that is a very big emotional blow. Because what they have to acknowledge is that I am dependent on someone else if I want to do something. I am dependent. We have a hard time with that, acknowledging that we are dependent on God. But we are. We are dependent on God for everything we have. We are dependent on God for the air that we breathe. We're dependent on God for the water that we drink. And one of the things about these storms that we've had recently, it's made me realize that if God wanted to, if God wanted to, there could be a storm of such magnitude that none of us would make it through it. We are dependent on the goodness of God, and that's hard for us to deal with. There was a song a few years ago, Frank Sinatra sang it, and this is how old it was, but it was really an anthem. I did it my way. By golly, I did it my way. I don't have any regrets because I did it my way. Well, you can look around at the world, the city, your family, our, our neighborhood, our schools, and we can just see what happens when you do it my way. It just doesn't work. So that's a hard one, but God is sovereign, and we have troubles with that. The third concept that I think this is built on, and in some ways this might be the toughest of all. Let me ask a question. How many of us felt like the workers who worked the most and got paid the same, how many of us, and don't feel bad about this, how many of us felt like they, they had a gripe coming? They, had a, they, they should have been upset. How many of us feel that way? Okay, yeah, we understand that because that's the world that we live in, that they had, a, uh, they had a complaint coming. The difference is, in the kingdom of God, the landowner's system, the landowner's mindset, the landowner's mentality was not based on how much they did or how well they performed. The landlord's rewards were not based on the number of hours worked versus the number of hours someone else worked. The landlord's, the landlord's system was not based on what the world thinks that we are entitled to. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based on how fast we run and not based on the pace that we keep. It's not based on any of those things. It is based on the character and the nature of God. And if God wants to be generous, and if God wants to extend grace, he has every right to do that. 
that's who he is. And he has every right to do that as he goes forward through here. God is a generous and grace-filled God. And that is the greatest truth that I think any of us can ever hear and get our mind on. We talk a lot about the grace of God. It's something that we think a lot about. But have you ever stopped and thought about what a really big deal that is? What a huge deal that is? What an amazing thing that is? Grace is, now hear this, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unearned favor. In a sense, grace is undeserved favor. It's not fair. The workers were right. It's not fair. But it's, it's, not, it's unfair because it's unearned, because you can't earn grace. You can't earn it. If you try to earn it, it becomes something else. And this system is based on grace. But the issue is not whether we can go out and earn it. The issue is are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to grasp it? Are we willing to deal with it? We need to realize our salvation is a God-centered, God-initiated activity. We just respond. Let me ask you a question. When we get a gift, someone gives us a gift, very often, what's our immediate response if it's not our birthday or Christmas or something like that? Say someone just came up, I just came up and gave Richard a gift. What do you think our typical response is? Anybody? Do what? Thank you, and why? And we need to give one back. We need to keep things even. We can't keep things even with God. We just can't do it. And that's hard for us in some ways, because as long as we're keeping it even, we're kind of in charge. But God's in charge of this. This is what God is doing. Titus 3, 4, and 5. Wopsle read this last week. Said, but, says basically this. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's an amazing gift. Because in the kingdom of God, we can't perform well enough. We can't work enough hours. We can't do all that. And the reality is, none of us are innocent. We can't not sin. We just can't do it. In fact, if you want to walk out of here and determine to be a perfect person, I would like to meet you right after the service, and we'll walk around back, and you can beat your head against the wall. <laughs> because I guarantee you that'll be more productive if you go about doing it that way. None of us in here can think the right thoughts, do the right things, say the right things, take the right actions, have the right motives, etc., you can put that in negative, positive or negative things. We don't do the things we should. We do the things that we shouldn't. And every one of us in here, and I'm not trying to pass judgment, but I'm going to be real direct. Every one of us in here knows that we're guilty. Every one of us in here knows that we fall short. We have all sorts of ways of dealing with it. We rationalize, we justify, we blame. When I was uh, practicing psychology, we had a sign that was on one of the doors, of the, one of the walls of the office. It said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. And, uh, <laughs> you know, needless to say, needless to say, we only saw men after that. But, uh, uh, and, you know, it's a pure Freudian deal, and it's also very, very wrong. But that's a tendency that we have. If it's not one thing, it's caused by something else. Just having a hard time even owning it as we go forward. So the bottom line is we fall short and we need help. That's the bottom line. 
So the question I think that I want us to finish with in the next four or five minutes is basically what difference should grace make in our lives? What difference should it make? How should we different? How should we differ in this new kingdom because of grace? Here's something I thought of. Grace-based people have true humility. True humility. Not a whiny, I'm lower than dirt persona. Not some, something like that. But one that realizes I have received an amazing gift that I don't deserve and I'm grateful. So this, that's true humility, those kinds of things. I'm being saved for eternity, not on my own merits or works, but by the undeserved grace of God. That's a big deal. That's humility. I'm not do, getting this because of what I've done. I'm getting this because of the grace of God. Grace-based people are motivated differently. By the way, you need to know this. I believe Christians should be the best possible friends they can be, the best possible employers, the best possible employees, the best possible students, the best possible neighbors, the best possible spouses, the best possible parents. The very best we can be. But we do it from a different place. We have a different motivation as we go through it. We don't do it primarily to get more good stuff from God. We do it out of gratitude for the grace that God has given us. And it's a way of us saying thank you. It's a way of us doing that. Another one that I think grace-based people have, grace-filled people, they're people of integrity. Let me read a verse from Romans. Romans 6, 1 and 2. In chapter 5, Paul has been talking about grace. In chapter 6, he starts out, Now what is our response to be? Shall we send to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? In other words, if grace is such a good thing, why don't we do the world a favor and sin a lot so we can get more grace? I mean, that's really the way their mind worked. They were trying to work their way through it, like a lot of us do in our world today. And listen to what he says. What a ghastly thought. What a horrible thought. We who have died to sin, how could we live in sin a moment longer? Hear this. Grace might be a free gift, but it is not a cheap gift. It costs God a lot, and we need to appreciate that. Grace-based people rejoice at the grace received by others, not like the workers in the field. Instead of being, wow, these guys have a great deal. Look at their situation. They resented it. And I can't speak for Frank. He's not here anymore, like we said, but I think I knew him well enough to know that he would have not had one scintilla of resentment for the thief on the cross getting what he got as being basically what Frank got. He would have rejoiced. Grace-based people rejoice at the grace received by others. Grace-based people try to see things and people through the eyes of grace. I can't remember the name of the movie, but I heard an example once. There were these two people that were walking down the street, and they saw this lady who was basically a derelict hanging out in the gutter, those kinds of things. So they were talking about it, and one of them knew about her and one of them didn't. Well, who is this person? Well, she's a bum. Well, what was she before she was a bum? She was a prostitute. What was she before she was a prostitute? Well, before she was a prostitute, she was a loser. What was she before she was a loser? Before she was a loser, she was a rebel. What was she before she was a rebel? She was a beautiful little girl from a broken and abusive home. That's the eyes of grace. Instead of casting immediate judgment, we try to see things through the eyes of grace. Now, I don't know how we'll behave. That's up to us, and that's up to what God calls us to do. 
But it's a different perspective on people. It's through the eyes of grace. Grace-based people are willing to face complex issues and grapple with them. What does it mean to extend grace and forgiveness to someone who has done unforgivable things? That is really hard. What does it mean to be grace-based towards someone and still have boundaries? That's really hard. But grace-based people are willing to move into those issues. So as we finish up, you know, one of the things that I said I would talk about, I've mentioned to you, and I don't mean to do true, too many true confessions here, but this is one. A few weeks ago, we were talking about what sermons to do and this and that and what parables do you want to do. And, you know, I knew this would be a week that I would do one. And I chose this parable. And the reason I chose this parable is for several days before, I had just had bad day after bad day after bad day in terms of living the way that I think God wants me to live. And I'm not going to a litany of all my sins. You need to know I didn't rob a bank or hurt anybody or attack anyone. But just little things that I do that I've been struggling with for a long, long time. Things like being disciplined when you go to bed. Things like watching what you eat. Things like watching what you watch on TV. Things like treating people well. Just things like that. And I had a bunch of bad days. Bad days. And I was really, really down. And that morning I came to work and I just pulled out the Bible and I was just thinking about something and I thought, man, I am so glad there is grace because I haven't earned anything good in the way I've lived these last week or so. Grace, it's an amazing, amazing thing and I really hope we can appreciate it. The goal that I had for today is I want us to come out of here with a greater appreciation of God's grace the grace that is extended to us, and be willing to live out that grace with other people. The other thing I want us to realize is grace is not something that we can earn. It's something that we can accept, but we can't earn it. For some of us, that might mean putting our pride aside and acknowledging that we are broken people and we need help. And that's a hard thing for some of us to do. Like I say, I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my fate. But we have to put that aside and that we need help. Grace can't really happen without humility. It just can't. And more important, I hope we can come out of here with an appreciation for the one who gives grace, for the one who is the giver and the author of grace, that we can come out of here with that. Let's pray, and we'll finish up. Father, we come to you now, and we uh, thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love. We thank you for your care, and we thank you for your concern. We, um, we admit that we need, people, we need your grace, we need your caring, we need your concern. And I pray that you would help us. We cannot be a grace-based church without being a grace-based person. We cannot be a grace-based spouse without being a grace-based person. We can't be the kind of worker we want to be, the kind of employer we want to be. So we pray that you would help us to appreciate and incorporate grace into our lives. And Lord, even though grace might seem unfair sometimes, it is unfair because it involves all of us getting something we don't deserve. And we really need to be grateful for that. Thank you for your grace and your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.